You're listening, You're to, listening radio. to Radio Free, radio Satan. free Satan. Com. Com. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is January 6th, and I've got a great show for you this week. This is the first episode of uh, year 48, Anno Satanus. Wow. Third year of Nine Cents, 2013, Kamenera. Good stuff happening, huh? Alright, well, welcome to the new year of Nine Cents. And you just heard the intro that was uh, composed by Gyps Fulvus. And that's half of it. And the other half will be played at the very end of the show. And opening us there with the line, you heard the... Uh, uh, Josh Lotta actually gave the, the intro line. And before that, it was the new Raider Free Satan bumper my wife and I recorded together. So, uh, a little, uh, you know, loving sounds. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, so uh, the show is as follows in The Devil's Advocate. I have the uh, essay by Megas Peter H. Gilmore, I Am the Light and the Way. It's a really good essay, and uh, it's in his the Satanic Scriptures volume, a uh, fantastic book. You have to pick it up if you haven't already. In an infernal informant in Steubenville, hundreds protest police social media response to alleged rape. And general details... Pentagon tensions with Obama on Afghanistan. And in the creature feature, I talk with Josh Latta about his comics, his profession, and, you know, a little humorous banter back and forth. It was a lot of fun. But before I dive into the show, uh, some updates here. Uh, Cross. So the comic that I am putting out with Tribe Comics in their um, Tribe After Dark division, uh, I wrote the story. And my friend Scott is doing the artwork for it. And he has come back with the, the final art for the interior pages. I had um, adjusted them very, very slightly. His art was really, really fantastic. Um, and so I resubmitted them to the text man. He'll be putting in uh, my words and, you know, making sure everything's on the up and up and stuff, uh, as far as, like, that technical side goes. I just recently finished the logo for Cross that we're going to be using f throughout this four-edition or four-episode um, set. And uh, next, I've got to start working on the cover. So, um, I have photos, you know, for reference and everything, so that's going. Um, I'd hoped to have it out at the New Year, or maybe even before the New Year, but everything else that I've got going on, it just couldn't happen. Um, so it is still in the works, and it's actually really close to completion, and we're already starting work on the second episode or issue or whatever you call it. <laughs> uh, but it's a good story, uh, very adult, very sexy in kind of sort of you know cartoony ways, and uh, a lot of fun. So look forward to that, and I, <laughs> you can bet your ass I'm going to be uh, mentioning it as soon as it's ready. Um, but another thing I wanted to mention, and I briefed you guys last week on this, RadioFreeSatan.com. That's right. It's time to pay the bills, people. Okay, so 
every year, RadioFreeSatan.com features podcasts uh, with that sort of third side association, a little satanic perspective. And the shows have actually, or the network has actually been broadening. So it recently um, brought in Terra Transmission, which is amazing. Um, you know, uh, Naughty Bits was brought in uh, into the network, which was huge. And there's actually a few new shows that um, people just just started up that are really good too. So you have a wide variety of content with RadioFreeSatan.com. And if you're enjoying it, on a weekly or on a daily basis isn't reason enough for you to donate a little bit of Skrilla to help keep it going, to help keep it free, well then maybe a little bit of my own, uh, you know, sort of buffering can help. Okay, so you know that I released the Black House Blues album as a YouTube, but it's not available as MP3 at all. Well, if you donate $10 to Radio Free Satan, uh, to help pay their bills and to sort of pay back what you're already getting for free. If you spend $10 donating, uh, I'll give you the MP3 of that track. Now, I'm not selling this. It is our take on the Hymn of the Satanic Empire, written by uh, Anton Xander LeVay, and it is a rock blues version of it. It's It was a lot of fun, and, you know, it's free. So you get, it's just an added bonus if you want to donate some money. Uh, $10 is not the limit, though. If you want to donate $15, I will give you the last, the final MP3 of the Nine Cents Presents Satanists on Satanic Cinema, um, sort of four-episode set. Now, this episode is actually not going to be for sale at all. So, for a little bit of time, this is going to be your only way of getting it. This is the episode, The Brotherhood of Satan. <laughs> I didn't even say that right. Featuring, uh, Magister... Uh, Matt G. Paradise, and Radio Free Satan's own Reverend Bill M. So both of these gentlemen have been with Radio Free Satan for a very long time. They've put a, really countless hours into their own uh, shows and into your entertainment. And this is one more um, exercise of that. Um, Nine Cents Presents Satanists on Satanic Cinema, The Brotherhood of Satan. It is a really great little riff track between the three of us. We had a lot of fun watching it. Um, there is a little bit of movie audio bleed through, which is why I'm not ever going to be putting it up for sale. So if you want to get it, donate $15 to RadioFreeSatan.com. And if you donate $20, I'm going to give you the ebook version of my children's book, How Crow Got a Scare Back. But if you donate $20 or more and you don't want that, you can choose any of the other rewards that uh, I mentioned. Uh, either the Black House Blues track, the Satanist on Satanic Cinema episode, or the ebook. It's your choice completely. And if you want to donate more than that, that's awesome. And we truly appreciate it. And uh, Raider Free Satan is very grateful for it. Um, this is all free content. All you have to do is uh, donate a little bit to keep enjoying it free. So keep that in mind. I'm going to be doing this uh, throughout the entirety of January. Um, and I will need a little bit of proof here, okay? So don't just email me saying I donated because I'm going to be checking. Uh, you can either email me... Um, I don't know, like a, a date, name, and email, and then I can double-check that with Radio Free Satan, and then I will send you um, whatever reward you uh, qualified for or whatever reward you wanted if you uh, paid $20 or more. Um, and so, you know, everyone wins. You get something, Radio Free Satan keeps going, and uh, we all sort of scratch each other's backs, and in the end, 
uh, share this sort of a uh, nice little satanic, uh, you know, three-way of sorts. <laughs> I don't know. Um, how about I uh, shut up and just start the show, eh? So each of these segments has a brand new recorded intro, a little bumper, so to speak. So, I hope you enjoy them, and at the end, let me know. You know, shoot me an email at info at 9centspodcast.com, or reach out in any of the social networking sites that uh, we're a part of here, and let me know what you think of them better, worse than the previous years. You know what? Your honest feedback is going to help me really create the next years that much better. So, I always appreciate it, good or bad. Let's start the show, shall we? You are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you are the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm an active member in the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. I am the light and the way. It was inevitable for this generation to whom the cathode ray tube is their monolithic deity, the time had come for the birth of a savior. They all inhabit a tactically accepted Christian frame for reference, so they are the ones who have this need for being saved, and lo, the virgin mother of the desktop PC was visited by the Holy Spirit of online communication, and thus was delivered unto the herd the incarnation of their deity, the internet. It is their God-made flesh. They have forsaken worldly things for a virtual heaven here and now, but isolated from the abundance of the earth. <laughs> That's the intro of uh, Magus Peter H. Gilmore's I Am the Light and the Way found in the Satanic Scriptures. This is a fantastic essay because it talks about a couple things, um, really, and it's, you know, today, ever-growing. So, <clears throat> we can say, when this was written, the internet... Um, was the catalyst um, for writing the essay, and, and we can see its contents portrayed now into social networking. Um, the core message is exactly the same. There was a time when we would jest that television was the new god um, rather than religion, uh, because everyone just sort of sat in front of it and turned off. They They just absorbed everything that was coming at them, and really what that meant was poor stories and advertisements. So you're constantly flooded with this, um, and you just sort of craved the banality of it. Uh, reality TV shows really just sucked in the herd, uh, and really just the non-thinkers. Um, and this has... Uh, sort of been pushed off a little bit and as the internet is becoming more and more accessible throughout the entire world. So 
at one point it was forums and chat rooms that would allow anyone to voice their opinions and be uh, whomever they wanted to be, uh, whatever sex they wanted to be, or as um, eloquent or garbled in their presentation. Um, and it, it provided a way of people feeling like they were of substance when they were not. So for those of us who live in the real world and who relish the real world experience and accomplishment, this is sort of a sandbox for idiots. Um, now, every idiot has a purpose, and we Satanists, <laughs> well, we know how to manipulate. That's kind of our thing. Lesser magic, you know? So we understand that there is a time and a place, and it is very easy to be sucked in to not only the internet, but also just social media in general. But it's a dangerous thing as well, because the more you get sucked into it, the more you're pulled away from actually living. And that's where the Satanists really thrive. And that's where the Church of Satan uh, has really expanded itself to be um, much more widely acknowledged for what it really is versus what people say it is or say it should be or say what they want it to be. Um, this essay is speaking to the fact that there is nothing that we can do, nor should we want to, to divert the herd's consumption and, and utter um, masochistic pleasure of their minds being washed away by the internet and social networking. Let it happen. Who cares? That's, that's really not us. Um, and that actually can benefit us greatly. Because not only does it allow us an avenue to manipulate um, people whom we may never come into contact with otherwise, it also gets them out of our way physically in the world around us so that we really can exercise our will uh, uninterrupted in a lot of cases. And a lot of those cases would not have been possible had the internet not been around. So there certainly are some negative uh, effects that the internet and social networking has brought about. But for us Satanists who know how to really monopolize, uh, I'm sorry, capitalize on a situation, we understand that the, the internet isn't necessarily all that bad um, because it benefits our will. As, as long, you know, as with anything in life, um, and this is sort of, <laughs> sort of something that I say regardless of what I'm talking about. Um, as long as you're going into it with your eyes open. So, it's easy to get sucked in. Don't do it. <laughs> Pull yourself back and realize that a good book, walking through a park, um, feeling the grass on your feet and the breeze across your face is a much more rewarding experience and you exercising your will on your environment and meeting success on your own terms in the real physical world, which actually benefits those physical people that you have chosen to love and hold close, is much more important and much more demanding of your attention. So, um, it's a great article, and there's actually a lot more that um, Megas Gilmore speaks to in that particular essay, but I think you should go pick up this book if you don't have it already in your library, and you should absolutely read it for yourself, because it's a really great way of sort of turning this um, this idea of, 
uh, divine birth, um, creation of what the masses need as a god, and how the internet really fills that void perfectly for them. And he reflects a little bit as well on um, uh, Anton LaVey's interpretation of artificial uh, human companions um, being the new trend and... Uh, well, just go read it for yourself because you're going to love it. Uh, I think that's going to be it for my review here. Um, let's go ahead and dive in to the new intro for the Infernal Informant. Psst. Hey, hey. Hey, come here. Psst. What? Huh? Me? Do I know you? Hey, you're religious, man, aren't you? No more than anyone else. Listen. Listen, I got a secret. It's, it's been eating me up and I got to share it with someone. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I don't know you. No, listen, man. It's about you. It's about your life. You're about to have what, what alcoholics refer to as your moment of clarity. What are you talking about? Are you okay, son? Sins are indisposable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They are only reliable weapons of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's, it's necessary to him that there be sinning. Who the fuck are you, kid? I'm your infernal informant. The first article is from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. In Steubenville, hundreds protest police. Social media response to alleged rape. Videos, allegations create firestorm of debate in small Ohio Valley town. And this was posted on the 6th by uh, Marilyn Pitts. Steubenville. For more than three hours Saturday, chants, signs, and speeches filled the cold air outside the Jefferson County Courthouse as a crowd of 800 to 1,000 people demanded a more thorough investigation into the alleged rape of a 16-year-old West Virginia teenager by football players from this economically depressed Ohio Valley community. Two members of the Steubenville High School football team, Trent Mays and Malik Richmond, both 16, have been charged with assaulting the young woman last summer and faced trials in February. The case has attracted national attention because of recent internet postings, including a 12-minute video of a former Steuben Steubenville student recounting the alleged sexual assault in graphic detail. Initially, online conversations focused on a series of alcohol-fueled parties attended August 11th by football players in which the girl, who was inebriated and largely unresponsive, was carried from place to place, photographed and assaulted, according to witnesses. Later, postings featured criticism of the teenager's behavior and the investigation that followed. I will not stand idly by and let a young girl's life be ruined because she believes everyone is apathetic, said Sable Foster, a 23-year-old Kent State University senior who spoke to the crowd using a bullhorn. Later, Miss Foster and the initial investigation by Steubenville police lacked thoroughness. We need the actual culprits. It takes more than two people to transport a body from party to party. There are some liquor stores that will sell to Big Red, Steubenville High School, football players. We don't want to see it tried in juvenile court. That's an adult crime. Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine is leading the prosecution because the local prosecutor and judge recuse themselves. 
Saturday's demonstration was organized by the online activist group known as Anonymous, which had taken a role in keeping national attention on the case. Members of the group have hacked into email accounts and websites of people connected to the alleged crime and have posted images and documents online, including a 12-minute video of the former student recounting the rape. Anonymous supporters wear the Guy Fox mask made popular in the film V for Vendetta, and many such masks were present at Saturday's demonstration. Really quick, let me let me sort of touch on this idea of of trial um, as an adult. And this is my opinion. And there's, you know, the trial is meant to demonstrate um, guilt and and, and exercise judgment um, on these kids. But they are kids. They're sixteen. So what they did. Um, was what 16-year-olds would do if they were these kids. They're just sick, twisted kids doing sick, twisted things. Um, does that mean that they should be tried as adults because of how we in society see their actions? Well, I mean, if it was up to me, it would be Lex Talionis and we'd be cutting their dicks off. I mean, point blank, that's what I would do, right? <laughs> Our justice system won't do that. It's set up to protect uh, as much as possible uh, this sort of manufactured idea of humanity. Now, I'm not going to get into the argument of, of what these kids did was not humane in any way and, and they should be punished because I, I can't defend that. I actually believe that they should be punished um, severely. But they are still kids, and if our system is set up that a certain age range is appropriate for sexual behavior, a certain age range is appropriate for service and for uh, taking part in the greater uh, social society, uh, as in voting in the draft, well then we have to follow suit with the rest of those laws that are age-specific, meaning that yes, these must be atrocious uh, crimes that these kids committed or ac accused of committing and actually admitted to in this tape that was released to committing um, very like like they didn't care at all what they did I mean this was just like a normal weekend for them uh, and certainly that was the idea you got if you heard um, those those video snippets of the actual uh, football students involved talking about it but they are kids, and our law says that they must be tried as kids. Now, if they were adults, they would be tried as adults. That's that's just how it goes. So just because you have an emotional reaction to said uh, situation or um, uh, uh, proceeding does not mean that we can just circumvent the law uh, because you just feel like it. No matter what. So if it was an, a 10-year-old who shot his sister in the face, it's still a 10-year-old. And he needs to be tried as a 10-year-old would be tried. And the consequences need to fit the crime much more than our, uh, our culture will allow it to. But because they don't, because we are forced to sort of dumb down everything, we have to keep in mind that we can't just tailor everything to the individual's wants. Because that means if we did, that it would be turned back on us at some point. And that's not something that I'm willing to do. 
So until Lex Talionis can be able to be enforceable, we need to respect the laws of the society we're in. Now, this is a stance Satanists all around the world have understood and clarified throughout every culture that we exist on this planet. We understand that we don't have to agree with the society's laws, but we have to respect them and live within them if we're going to be in that society. So, if we're in a society that says these are kids and they should be tried as kids, then we cannot let our emotional reaction to the incident change the law. Do that through legislation. Don't do that because you're pissed. More important, what is this idea that we all just get so upset over things happening to other people we've never met of? This isn't the first time that a rape has happened. And it's actually not the worst rape that's happened in the news recently. Check India out if you don't believe me. So why do we get so caught up? Are we that bored in our lives? Do we have nothing going on in our actual lives that we have to focus on other people's lives? Obviously, the answer is yes, because, you know, these stories come out and they're huge and, and people go to rallies about them. If you're not in that community, if you're not involved, you shouldn't give a damn about this. Like, it's a horrible thing that happens, but guess what? Horrible things happen every damn day. Literally. No hyperbole involved in that statement. Every day, horrible things happen. The All you can do is focus on you and yours and moving and advancing in your life. Exercise control over what you have the power to exercise control over, not over something way far away. And certainly don't change legislation on an emotional response. That's that's just ridiculous. That's probably the most offensive part of this entire thing. I mean, the rape is horrible, and I never condone that, and I they need to be punished for it. But that's what we have a system set up to do. That's bullshit in a lot of cases, as it ends up being. Um, that's the one that we created, we crafted, so we're going to have to live with it. Um, Alright, so Melissa Snyder of Wintersville, Ohio carried a placard that read, Your rape crew is over, a reference to what some of the football team members are said to have called themselves. The rape crew, like it was like a badge of honor they wore. Oh, these people. Why can't we just stop pretending to be this cultured society when we have shit like this happening? Okay? Now I'm going to go a little bit against what I just said about outrage. Um, but mine is is a broader context of of our society and our, our view of law. Why can't we just accept that without real consequences, people will do stupid shit and horrible shit like this i bet if you cut off one of the sexual organs of this rape crew there wouldn't be any more rapes not in that town not by those football members it, it, it wouldn't happen because there's real consequences the reason why they keep doing it is because there aren't consequences i blame the parents because the parents are phase one. If the parents let you that let the kids get away with bullshit, then they're gonna expect everyone to do it. And behavior like this, going along with this, if one of those football team members 
had an ounce of intestinal fortitude. If they cared at all about basic human respect, that's all I'm saying, basic human respect, this would have been stopped. It would not have been allowed to take place. But they don't. And where do you learn basic human respect? From your parents. That's right. So I blame the parents. They'll never be blamed by anyone else, I'm sure, but it's their fault for raising shit-eating kids. And those shit-eating kids did shitty things. So, guess what? They're juveniles. That means they're still under your responsibility, parents. They're not adults. You are responsible. So, let's cut the kids' junk off, and let's put the parents in prison, and make sure that they never have kids again for sterilization, because obviously they have proven, proven, that they are incapable of raising uh, citizens that, that would just not go around raping unconscious women. <laughs> and here's the horrible thing about this. People are going to think that my solution is the horrible thing about that whole statement. It, that, that's the shocking part of that entire little diatribe. Oh, completely ignoring the fact that these guys raped an unconscious woman, not only once, multiple times, and not only with themselves, but with objects, and took her from party to party doing it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not the shocking part of it. No, it's me expecting some sort of uh, retribution that fits the crime and to blame people that are actually responsible for the mental health of these children. Psh, let's not, let's not look at the actual cause. Let's just, you know, try them as adults and, and kill them and then uh, continue breeding this sort of self-entitled, I'm above the rules of the rest of the world children. Gah! That's the most aggravating part, is that we completely ignore the actual cause of these things. Completely, whether it's a, a shooting at a school or whether it's a, a, a rape at a school. There are causes. Let's look at them and stop pretending like legislation or the abandoning of legislation is going to be the, the, the ultimate band-aid that stops these from ever happening again. Let's start cutting off some junk. That's the quote for the day. <laughs> uh, how proud I am of this woman for standing up. It's not your fault, she said. James Lancaster, a father of five who lives in Steubenville, applauded the women. Like some demonstrators, he wore the mask but removed it before speaking. These are our daughters, our sisters, our wives. We need to teach our children right from wrong, said Mr. Lancaster, who works as a mental health coordinator for the mentally handicapped. Ah, uh, you know what? I want to give him a hug because he just said what I did. You need to take responsibility and teach the kids what's right and what's wrong. Over and over, the protesters demanded the resignations of Reno uh, Saccaccio, the Steubenville High School longtime football coach who was criticized after the incident for not disciplining other players who were at the party, and Jefferson, uh, Jefferson County Sheriff Fred Abdallah, who they say has not taken enough responsibility in the investigation. Sheriff Abdallah watched the crowd before addressing it. He was dressing in uniform and wore it teal ribbon, a visual sign of support for rape victims. Nancy Snodgrass, 49, of nearby Fallensby, West Virginia, said she would walk three miles to attend the demonstration, but hitched a ride with a friend. These women are so brave to step forward, we need to stand up for these women. 
Mrs. Snodgrass criticized Sheriff Abdallah. He's playing Pontius Pilate. He should be doing something about this, she added. Sheriff Abdullah called the women's stories heartbreaking. He told the protester that he advised third and fourth graders to be wary of strangers and warned them to watch out for relatives, too, because we've arrested fathers and grandfathers and stepfathers and boyfriends. What? The f- What? He told the protesters that he advised third and fourth graders to be wary of strangers and to watch their kid. What the fuck does that have to do with this case? What are they- is there, like, rampant rape going on in West Virginia? Okay, is that a stupid question? <laughs> it is West Virginia. But seriously, instead of addressing the issue, it, as by means of placating the crowd that he's doing his job, he's saying he's warning third and fourth graders to watch out for strangers and relatives because they're raping. What the fuck? After a demonstrator asked him... <laughs> When he first saw the 12-minute video, Sheriff Abdullah replied, The first time I saw it was three days ago. Liar, liar, pants on fire, the crowd shouted. Really? Really? That's the best you could come up with? And the, I love that, too, because the, there's probably, like, people that are just shouting, Liar! And then they just repeat it, Liar! And then some dickhead in the back, Pants on fire! <laughs> Too much? Too soon? He's <laughs> just so dumb. And then they put it in there like the, like it was all planned. Like, oh, liar, liar, pants on fire. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Give me a fucking break. Uh, <laughs> Sheriff Abdullah responded to reports, queries. As he left the courthouse steps, he said the boy who narrated the 12-minute video wasn't there when the alleged rape happened. He made the video based on what people told him, Sheriff Abdullah said. Three individuals witnessed the sexual contact. Earlier in the day, Steubenville City Manager Kathy Davidson spoke at a news conference to unveil a website called SteubenvilleFacts.org, sponsored by the city and its police department to disseminate the most accurate information about the case. During Saturday's briefing, Ms. Davidson did her best to put distance between the city's seven-member council and local authorities. The Jefferson County Prosecutor and Sheriff said... Um, she said, are elected by county residents. The city has no authority over the schools or the prosecutor. Mr. Davidson said, um, the city does not run the school or the football program. Steubenville Police Chief William McCafferty said police obtained a 12-minute video narrated by a male teenager in August. He said some folks received harassing phone calls and one man had to turn off his phone. Brian Yance, a 21-year-old security guard who grew up here, and his aunt Michelle Thomas were among the first to arrive to the rally and came with a pile of colorful signs. No football players should think that they can do whatever they want and get away with it, Mr. Yance said. Mr. Yance, who played left tackle on the football team and graduated from Steubenville High School in 2009, said he left the team in his sophomore year after missing several practices because his grandfather, who later died, was gravely ill. Coach Sicaccio, Mr. Yance said thinks football is above everything else, and it's not. See, and we're going to be focusing on football for this story. We're going to be focusing on on how the uh, local community appreciates football more than any other sport or more than at school, and so they give these football players a wider berth or, or a longer yardstick to, to judge their actions by, all the while ignoring the root causes. Every single adult should be exercising their will over juveniles. Um, let me clarify that a little bit. If you see someone stealing in a store, you call them out on it. If you know them, 
you call them out on it uh, because you're a responsible citizen in an operating society. Now, not every situation is the same, and there may be reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. That's fine. But if you're an adult in a situation where a minor is doing something that they're not supposed to do, you stop the bad behavior. And this, it's not just something illegal. I mean, if they're speaking incorrectly, if they're, if they're acting out, we feel like we can't actually just say, you're acting like an asshole. Stop. Like we can't correct anyone because they're going to cry to their parents and their parents are going to be all righteously indignant. How dare you talk to my children? The, my children are the best. They had 17 participations awards in the football team. They are the greatest. We are encouraging this type of behavior and all it takes is just the tiniest amount of intestinal fortitude to stand up and say no. That behavior is not okay. You don't have to be an adult to do it. But if you're an adult witnessing it, you do. So this football coach needs to exercise his uh, view of, of a cultured society a little bit more. Apparently he doesn't have any view of a cultured society or, or what that even means as far as behavior is concerned. But uh, if he did... That's what he should be doing, and every single adult, from the counselors, to the teachers, to the principal, to the uh, the drive-in owner, uh, the cafe clerk, everyone, if you see something happening that's not appropriate, correct that behavior. Now, it could be someone throwing trash on the ground, or throwing a cigarette butt on the ground, or... It could be someone raping someone at a party with a whole bunch of other people in it. Do something. Don't just stand there. Correct the behavior. Because guess what? I bet you anything that that girl would have appreciated it. And you probably would have gotten your ass kicked by the football players, but it may have stopped them from raping this poor girl. Just, why can't we expect people to be corrected for their poor behavior? Why is that a bad thing? Drives me crazy. Anyway, that's that's how I see it. Um, and obviously, I don't go around freaking correcting everyone either. But I guarantee you, if I saw some kids raping someone, I would go out of my way to stop it. I've I've interjected myself in situations far less aggressive than that. Um, that's not very convincing, <laughs> actually. That I think of it. Uh, okay, let's talk about the next article because I've been ranting on this for a long time here. And this is actually the New York Times general details Pentagon tensions with Obama on Afghanistan. And this is by Michael R. Gordon, posted on the January 5th. In a memoir, General Stanley A. McChrystal, the former American commander in Afghanistan, writes that tensions between the White House and the Pentagon were evident in the Obama administration from its opening months in office. The beginning of President Obama's first term saw the emergence of an unfortunate deficit of trust between the White House and the Department of Defense, largely arising from the decision-making process on Afghanistan. General McChrystal writes, The effects were costly. The book by General McChrystal, who was fired from his post in 2010 after an article in Rolling Stone quoted him and his staff making dismissive comments about the White House, is likely to disappoint readers who are looking for a vivid blow-by-blow -blow account of infighting within the administration. The book titled My Share of the Task, a Memoir, does not provide an account of the White House meeting at which Mr. Obama accepted the General's resignation. 
General McChrystal's tone toward Mr. Obama is respectful, and he notes that his wife, Annie, joined the crowd at Mr. Obama's inauguration. The book is to be released on Monday. An advanced copy of the book provides revealing glimpses of the friction over military planning and comes as Mr. Obama is weighing and perhaps preparing to overrule the troop request that has been presented by the current American commander in Afghanistan, General John R. Allen. The account <clears throat> excuse me, is all the more noteworthy since General McChrystal, who retired from the Army, remains a respected voice within the military and teaches a course on leadership at Yale. According to the book, the tensions began before General McChrystal took command in Kabul, Afghanistan, and were set off by a request from his predecessor, General David D. McKiernan, for 30,000 additional troops at the end of the Bush administration. Instead of approving the entire request, in February 2009, Mr. Obama decided that 17,000 would be sent. Adding that decisions in on additional deployments would be based on further analysis. From the White House's perspective, General McChrystal writes, this particular decision was logical. After less than a month, the president has increased American forces in Afghanistan by 50%, though Mr. Obama had cast the conflict in Afghanistan as a war of necessity. As a candidate, he has nothing wary. Uh, he was nonetheless wary about a prolonged American military involvement there. But the Pentagon pressed for an additional 4,000 troops, fearing that there was little time to reverse the Taliban's gains before the August elections in Afghanistan. The military felt a sense of urgency, seeing little remaining time if any forces improved were to reach Afghanistan in time to improve security in advance of the elections, he wrote. The White House later approved the 4,000 troops, but the disputed point to a deeper clash of cultures over the use of force that continued after General McChrystal took command. Military leaders, many of whom were students of counterinsurgency, recognized the dangers of an incremental escalation, and the historical lessons that trailing an insurgency typically condemned counterinsurgents to failure, he writes. In May 2009, soon before he uh, assumed command in Kabul, General McChrystal had a short but cordial meeting with Mr. Obama at which the president offered no specific guidance, he notes. The next month, General McChrystal was surprised when General L. I'm sorry, James L. Jones, Mr. Obama's first national security advisor, told him that the Obama administration would not consider sending more forces until the effect of arriving units could be fully evaluated. That contradicted the guidance that General McChrystal had received from Defense Secretary Robert M. Gates that he should submit an assessment in August of the additional forces that might be required, he writes. At an October 8, 2009 video conference with Mr. Obama's National Security Council, differences again emerged when Mr. I'm sorry, when General McChrystal outlined his goals, defeat the Taliban, secure the population. That prompted a challenge. Um, I'm sorry. That prompted a challenge by a Washington-based official, whom General McChrystal does not name, that the goal of defeating the Taliban seemed too ambitious and that the command in Kabul should settle instead for an effort to degrade the Taliban. At the next video conference, General McChrystal presented a slide showing that his objectives have been derived from Mr. Obama's own speeches and a White House strategy review. But it was clear to me that the mission itself was now on the table for review and adjustment, he wrote. After General McChrystal determined that 
at least 40,000 additional forces were needed to reverse the deteriorating situation in Afghanistan, Mr. Obama provided 30,000 and said he would ask allied nations to contribute the rest. General McChrystal acknowledges that he had concerns that Mr. Obama's decisions to announce a date for beginning the withdrawal for the additional surge forces might embolden the Taliban, but the general writes he did not challenge that decision. If I felt like the decision to set a withdrawal date would have been fatal to the success of our mission, I'd have said so, he writes. General McChrystal has little to say about the episode that led to the article in Rolling Stone. He writes that the comments about his team were unacceptable. Um but adds that he was surprised by the tone of the article, which he'd expected would show the camaraderie amongst the American, British, French, and Afghan officers. As the controversy over the article grew, General McChrystal did not seek advice before offering his resignation. The book does not say if he was disappointed when Mr. Obama accepted it at a brief White House meeting. Returning to his quarters at Fort McNair after the White House meeting, he broke the news to his wife. I told her that our life in the Army was over. This is uh, interesting to me because we hear we hear a lot of, of complaining uh, about adding any additional forces into Afghanistan and how really the national mantra has been to pull out of all of the wars and get back to um, what makes us great. And that's um, building up our infrastructure at home and focusing on science, technology and innovation. That's how we got to where we are right now. That's how we're going to move forward as a, a major world power. So the American people are screaming and yelling that they want to get out of these wars. And with the opposite hand, they're shaking their fists at the Obama administration for not doing what the generals are asking them to do. And ironically, that's put more forces in to Afghanistan. So... They're allowed to berate and assault the administration on both sides of the exact same argument. Uh, he decides to put in troops. How dare he? He doesn't put in enough troops. How dare he? <laughs> he can't win. Okay, well, that being said, let's talk about it from an administrative position. As commander-in-chief, like it or not, he sets the mission. Now, it's obvious that there was a misunderstanding between General McChrystal and Mr. Obama with what the mission is. Uh, General McChrystal thought it was to defeat the Taliban. Mr. Obama thought it was to find and kill bin Laden and sort of deteriorate the Taliban's influence. So, obviously, those two require quite different, quite different methods of assault. And so they were just sort of going along. And this just tells you that the, the, the lack of effective communication in our government, uh, certainly in our military. It should be crystal clear. But if there's that big of a misunderstanding over what the basic mission is, what smaller things are falling off the radar? Okay, so, you know, General McChrystal was not wrong for asking what he did and for expecting it to be followed, because that's his position. And he was operating under the understanding that he was trying to defeat the Taliban. And, from the other perspective, Mr. Obama was absolutely right, because he was tiptoeing a fine line between what his generals in the field wanted, based on the mission that he thought was being followed, and what the people he is serving want, the American public. 
that's got to be the most difficult, um, in my opinion, uh, of all of this. Not the most dangerous, the most difficult. I think that's an important distinction. So it's easy to point fingers at the administration and say, Obama, how dare you? And it's easy to point fingers at the military saying, um, you know, you're not showing respect to your commander in chief and you're not uh, following the mission that he set out for you. But there's always a third side to these. And we have to take a step back from it and do not allow uh, political banter or administrative banter to confuse you from that. And that is communication is not there. Not where it needs to be. And this actually may have been corrected since then, and it seems as if it has been. But we as citizens need to stop just screaming at the top of our lungs on partisan issues like this. Well, on issues that are used for partisan uh, cause like this. And realize that there maybe we don't have the bird's eye view of the situation. Maybe... Uh, Billy Bob, with his mustard-stained wife beater, doesn't have the complete effective knowledge um, that maybe a general or a president has. And so maybe their opinion doesn't mean shit. We put these people in positions of authority because they're better than, uh, presumably, us in these positions. Otherwise, if you're better at it, you should be doing it. Why let someone run something that you know they're doing wrong if you can actually do it better? And if you can't, then you shut the fuck up. Move aside and let them do their job. In this case, General McChrystal resigned. I don't know if he needed to, but he felt like he needed to. And politically, it was probably a good thing. So he resigned, and the mission moved forward, as it always does. But it's the nitpicking when you know nothing about the situation on the ground, and when you know nothing about the situation from the air, meaning what the overall mission is supposed to be. You just gotta shut up. Just stop. And stop trying to use that argument, that uneducated argument, for cause of who you should vote for, or who you shouldn't vote for, or how it's a tyranny, or how it's not a tyranny in this country. <laughs> Focus on what you can affect in your own life. That, and I said in the last article, you, you keep your, your eyes in the lane, okay? Stay in your lane. <laughs> you have influence over X. Worry about X. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. All right, so that's going to do it for the Infernal Informant. And let's go ahead and jump on into Creature Feature. Brand new intro here as well. Hope you enjoy it. What's this show called? What do you mean, what is it called? You know, what's the name of the show? What, like the title? What, what's the title of the show? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the title of the show? Look, it should be good enough for you and for any of you other Generation Y's or X's or W's or Z's or, or, or whatever fancy letter you're, you're sitting on today to, to realize that it's not about what the title is. It's not about... When I was your kid, there's only one thing that we had growing up. When we wanted to watch a show, we just turned on the telly uh, in Saturday mornings, and you know what we got? Do you know? Do you have any idea that what we got? No, I have no idea. Why are you freaking out? Every single Saturday. And we didn't know what shows were, what, what titles were, or, or what... We, we had no choices on what to watch. We were stuck with the creature feature. 
and so are you. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by Josh Latta, and we're going to be talking to him about Latta Land and his wildly popular comic, Rashi Rabbit, and some of uh, the little more innovative things he started, like avatars. Josh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me, man. I, we've sort of been uh, near missing each other in the chatting department for quite some time. Oh, uh, well, you know, I can't figure out Skype. I'm, I'm kind of a Luddite. I don't know how to do anything. I mean, I pretty much just have a can with a long string on it to communicate with people. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, you get that residual flavor or at least aroma of the SpaghettiOs. So, you know, it's got to be a good way to do it. Oh, yeah. I know that flavor all too well. I was a picky eater growing up. So when my parents actually made spaghetti, I would have to have SpaghettiOs because I just could not handle the ethnic. Nice. All right. Well, hey, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you, um, and then we're gonna dive into the comic side of things. Um, sure. And maybe we can just sort of start at the beginning. How was Sounds puberty good. for you? Sorry. <laughs> was... Oh no! What a bad beginning. <laughs> no. Can you listening. tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I uh, now live in Baltimore, Maryland, but I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I basically grew up on cartoons. A steady diet of cartoons and comic books. And uh, it, for whatever reason, I was just deeper into it than the rest of my friends. So I guess I was – if you can be born to do something like help people, then you certainly can be born to cartoon. And that's basically what I do and what I'm most passionate about. I like a few other things here and there. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Cartooning is my number one interest. Wow. Um, so I mean how young were you when when it sort of – hit you I'm pretty much right away uh, according to my parents I was drawing at two and um, yeah so I basically whenever I could hold a pencil I would and try and replicate cartoon characters and your parents were supportive of this I presume yeah they definitely were um, you know I know a lot of artists and they tell stories like oh my parents uh, you know they had uh, great adversity when it comes to doing comics but nah that wasn't my case <laughs> I'm maladjusted for other reasons but my parents were great <laughs> nice so i mean did they, did they encourage you throughout your whole uh, life uh, as, as you know growing up as a young man or, or were they did they ever get to a point where you sort of face that you know what put down the cartoons and i mean what did your parents do my parents um well my mom always kind of worked odd jobs mostly in nursing mm -hmm. and my dad worked for the state for years but they just told me to do what makes me happy and they were always really encouraging I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You're a parent, so I guess uh, one thing to watch out for, and it's one of those terrible things because everything your kid does is great and awesome, but uh, if you encourage a kid too much, it can really set them up for disappointment uh, later in life, and uh, that was something I encountered in junior high once I left the confines and the comfort of elementary school. <laughs> I realized, wait, I'm not the best anymore. <laughs> so I started having to work hard at drawing. Yeah, I thought I was the wonderful, most amazing artist ever. Oh, yeah, and still to this day, if I don't get that kind of recognition, um, it drives me up the wall. I just, I need that attention. It's got to be horrible. Shameful. Horrible and, and challenging for your sex life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Constant encouragement. No, you're doing great. You're huge. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I insist upon that. Oh, uh, you know, I, well, I got to say, I mean, for me, a steady stream of beatings and timeouts and crawl spaces uh, helps me develop my children in a very healthy way, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, they'll do fine. <laughs> they'll be captains of industry. Yeah. And no, yeah, I've always wondered about that, about constant reassurance. Uh, reassurance and, you know, it, we did sort of go through this period as a culture 
and I, I think I guess the majority of people are still in this in this mode though I think it's phasing out of where you are supposed to you know just hold your kids aloft in the air and just say you are the greatest at whatever you do and participation is enough and as yeah I don't know but as far as car comics and cartoons go I mean you are really good at it and so you know obviously okay. that's why I wanted to have you on and talk to you about it because your success and stuff so maybe we can talk a little bit about that um, during your uh, advancement as an artist uh, as you grew um, did you always have your eye on that comic um, angle or did you ever think that maybe I could develop this into um, a more illustrative um, uh, less comic and did you ever try to do anything like that with your art? Um, I guess I kind of flirted with uh, trying to draw more realistic in my late teens, early 20s. But yes, pretty much I was a cartoonist from birth. And that's what I like to draw and that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I do best. So um, yeah, comics were always the end goal. Um, animation too. I guess when I was really young, um, I just wanted to be part of that process, whether it was uh, comic books or animation, just part of it. I wanted to be that uh, cog in the machine at the Disney factory. Yeah. But uh, the older I got, the more I realized I'm not really cut out to sit in cubicles. I had to invent my own way. I can't just work for a company. Even if it was someone like Disney? Oh, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine how oppressive of a job that would be? Plus, their heyday is long, long over. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, I guess in traditional, yeah, I guess so. I mean, Pixar has really sort of reinvigorated them, I think. Oh, yeah, sure. But so did you ever consider, um, well, hold, hold on, I mean, let me sort of back this up a little bit. What were some of your early influences? I mean, obviously Disney was one. Yes, Disney was probably the biggest and most influential because um, it was just such a big part of all our cultures mm -hmm. and childhood. And for whatever reason, it really stuck. But um when it comes to Disney in particular, there was a cartoonist named Carl Barks who did these Donald Duck comic books that had a really big impact on me. So Donald Duck comic books, particularly uh, Carl Barks, Looney Tune cartoons, um, Mad Magazine was a really big thing <laughs> yeah. for me. Did you ever take shit growing up in, in uh, middle school and high school about cartoons and, and cartooning? Uh, a little bit. Um, it's not what it is today. I couldn't imagine walking around in a t-shirt that said, like, uh, I don't know, that had Iron Man on it in junior high without getting your fair share of shit. But I think nowadays you can wear an Iron Man shirt and no one's going to have a problem with it. But, um, yeah, I think the cartooning comics uh, interest I had was the least of uh, my bully's concerns. I was just kind of a... I was just really, really shy and timid when I was that age. Mm. Um, it goes to show it's something you can grow out of, especially yeah. if you want to get laid. So if that's my <laughs> message to your, to your listeners. If you want to get laid, you got to get over the shyness. <laughs> so it's a very good, good message. Um, <laughs> okay, well, let's sort of transition here to your, your uh, rashy rabbit. Where did this come from? Um, you know, I just had this really, really bad date once. Um, it was the... <laughs> <laughs> it was this four, yeah, just once in my life. No, it was just birthday, and I went out with this girl that I just barely knew, and uh, I went to her parents' house, and they were out of town, and it went so disastrously, and uh, really no fault of my own. Well, I'm sure there's fault of my own, but um, she was just insane, and uh, the more she drank, the more crazy she'd get. And as soon as I left, I was like, "Wow, that'd make a really good one-room play." And then I thought, well, I can draw it as a comic. So um, as soon as it happened, I started kind of drawing uh, the comic version of what happened. And I could never finish it. I could never put it, pick it back up. And um, so um, I guess I had an epiphany later. And uh, I was thinking that perhaps uh, I should draw it as funny animals so I can really be honest and uh, 
really draw uh, what I was feeling and uh, admit to some of the really scummy things that happened that <laughs> night. Uh, when you're drawing yourself, there's still you're going to be a little guarded. But once I started drawing a rabbit stand in, I wasn't guarded at all. So after the first one, um, I just had more and more ideas. So um, it just kind of was born out of a fluke. If I really thought it through, I probably wouldn't have named him Rashi. <laughs> Is that because of any um, <laughs> physical uh, problems at the time? Yeah, that was absolutely <laughs> an STD joke. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it uh, started off as an autobio story, and each issue got a little more broad and cartoony, which is probably what I always really wanted to do, but um, it takes some chops to pull off a really broad, cartoony story, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, presumably, you're you're creating the stories for these comics as well, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do all my own writing. So have you ever considered yourself as a writer, um, separate from, from the drawing? Um, no, not really. Uh, I like to, I do like to write, uh, for myself and I like to write for my website, but, uh, all in all writing is kind of difficult for me because, uh, you know, like you, I'm, I guess I mentioned it. Someone mentioned it, the ghost of Christmas past. I don't know, but, uh, I, I grew up in Atlanta. So, um, I went to public school in Atlanta and it wasn't very good. So somehow I missed out on the spelling and punctuation. And so writing is always kind of embarrassing to me because there's always going to be a a lot of misspelled words, a lot of bad punctuation yeah. mistakes. So um, thankfully, I have people to double check. Particularly Erin, she's uh, she's definitely got the patience for uh, double checking everything I write. Nice. So I've had comics go to print with misspelled words, and that is humiliating. <laughs> um, just to tie it in together a little bit more for the audience, Erin, um, uh, the hostess of uh, Down at the Crossroads, uh, you've actually done a lot of the artwork or all of the artwork for. Um, the Facebook page and for the promos out there. So uh, just sort of, you know, connecting the dots there for people. Um, so what year are we talking that you started the whole Rashi Rabbit concept? Oh, it was probably 2003 or something around there. So, I mean, before that, did you ever consider doing your own um, comic entirely? Or were you thinking that maybe you would, you know, uh, connect with someone else and, and sort of collaborate? Um. Well, I've been doing comics for a long time, and I have collaborated with people. And um, sometimes it's fun, but all in all, I prefer not to because uh, no matter what, people will give you these really word-heavy scripts. You take one mm -hmm. look at it, you think, well, you know, this paragraph right here would take 10 pages to visually describe. So it always kind of come back to, I guess, I don't know. I, I just I felt more comfortable. Like I knew what I wanted to do and what I was comfortable with drawing. But um I guess I wouldn't mind to collaborate to this day, but uh, all in all, I definitely think I do my best work alone, and um, that's what I'm going to probably continue doing. Wow. Yeah, see, that's like sort of the exact opposite. Like in my in my uh, field, uh, graphic design, I think collaboration ends up to being, you know, amongst creatives, ends up being a stronger design. But for you, it actually, it's the, it's the exact opposite. That's That's interesting. Among creators is one thing, but probably when graphic design, uh, you have a bunch of uh, just regular clients telling you what they want. <laughs> yeah. Bigger logo. It's always bigger. Yeah. Well, if they show you a logo and say, hey, make it look kind of like this, no, make it exactly <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. what they want. <laughs> um, okay. So, I mean, Rashi Rabbit, you've had around for quite some time. What are some of, uh, where can people look to learn more about Rashi Rabbit or maybe to pick up one of the comics um, featuring? 
uh, Ladaland.com would be probably be the best place to find it. And you can even read it for free if you don't really feel like committing to it. But uh, hey, you know, it's kind of cool just to have the actual printed comic. I, I'm still of that uh, of that era when the book still matters. Mm-hmm. And how do you think that's going to be uh, affecting you as an artist, uh, as, a, as a comic creator in the coming years, as, as everything seems to be pushing more and more digital? I guess I got to go in that direction. Um, you know, I really don't make much money, if any, on comics. So um, it's not really the money issue. I just want a lot of people to see it. And I guess if everyone's reading comics online, then who am I not to put them online? Yeah. And it's kind of tough because at one level, you want to um, present it in the fashion that you feel is going to be um, the best for your message and for the experience yeah. and everything. On the other line, other hand, if you want people to actually look at it, then you, sometimes you have to sort of give on some of those uh, presentation quirks. Um, yeah, yeah, and I feel like it's real when it's finally a printed book. That's when I'm like, wow, this is really a comic book. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, wh- when did you do your first uh, comic book, like official comic book of Rashi Rabbit? When did that come out? Uh, for Ashy, um well, the first one was called Anxiety, Sleep Problem, and Depression. And uh, no one could ever remember that uh, title. But um, yeah, because it was based on that uh, like, crazy thing. Yeah, can you believe it? No one, that wouldn't stick. People kept calling it that rabbit book. So by the third issue, I switched over to just calling it Rashy Rabbit. But uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think that was 2003. Okay. That's just my guess. Yeah. I mean, you had mentioned you'd collaborated before that uh, and, and you've done comics before that. Do you want to drop any names on, on what you were working on before? Um, yeah, uh, let me see. My very first comic strip was called Suicide Funnies, and it was obviously a late teen, early 20s kind of angry strip that was, I don't even, I don't know, kind of South Parky, as shameful as that is to admit now. And, um, you know, I was really just trying to learn the craft. I didn't quite know how to draw a comic, um, or anything, really. I could draw, like, okay cartoon characters at the time. When I look back, of course, I cringe, but... (laughs) When you're drawing comics, you realize, wow, I really don't know how to draw things like doorknobs. I don't know how to draw a toaster. I don't know how to draw you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a decent lamp. And once you start drawing comics, you find that you're drawing absolutely everything. So it's uh, if you're interested in uh, getting becoming better as an artist, I mean, comics are the way to go because you'll be covering every subject, every item. Yeah, no matter how mundane, yeah. Yeah, now I kind of enjoy drawing lamps. I kind of enjoy the strange little <laughs> details in the background. I mean, if you look at Rashi Rabbit or most of my art, I, I do love detail. Yeah, well, drawing comics isn't the only thing that you do, right? I mean, you do a lot of um, uh, you do a lot of freelance work as well. Um, what are some of the clients yeah. that you've done uh, recently? Um, I did a poster for this band White Denim, which was fun because uh, that's Aaron's favorite rock band. Nice. So uh, it was always nice to be able to do a job to impress your girlfriend. <laughs> Um, I did something for Turner really recently, TBS's website. They um, had a new show called um, Wedding Band or something like that. Not that I want to plug that show. I've yeah. never seen it. What the fuck? But uh, I did a game for them where I designed uh, visually all these song titles, artists, um, bands, things like that. Um, just as pictographs almost. So uh, I'm pretty well suited for stuff like that. But those were two of my more interesting clients recently. But all in all, I do a lot of commissions. Regular mm-hmm. people can always contact me and I'll draw them whatever they want to be draw, or whatever they want me to draw. The little people. <laughs> yeah, the little people. <laughs> Usually I try to shake them off my boot. No, I mean, and it's interesting because as far as a working, I don't know, do you consider yourself a comic or an illustrator when it comes to freelance work? How do you how do you uh, promote yourself? Um, 
Well, I guess for freelance, um, the comics stuff kind of impresses people a little bit, but uh, all in all, it's just an illustration job for me. Yeah. But um, all in all, I think it's the comic uh, background that makes me appealing because uh, I have a cartoonier style. And also, um, pretty much all the freelance work I get nowadays has some humor tie to it, uh, which is great because... I feel like I'm just well suited for that. That's what I like. I like funny things. I like funny movies. I mean, humor gets such a bad rap. It's not taken serious. Well, that's not stupid. Humor's not taken seriously. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's easy to bum people out, and it's really hard to make people laugh. And you could look stupid in the process. So it's a brave thing to do. Not not patting my own back, saying I'm brave for doing humor. But uh, I'm just well suited for it. I like jokes. I like funny. Nice. Do you think that, I mean, in, in the history of your uh, career so far, do you think that that has changed in our culture, um, being more accepting of, of humorous advertising? Yeah, I didn't, I've never thought about that, but uh, yeah, I, you're probably right. Perhaps the internet opened it up for, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of sort of memes and, and, and little meta references and stuff like that yeah i mean it's definitely permeated the advertising world is you know you do graphic design so you probably see the trends more than anybody yeah i mean as far as like real estate and, and retail but that's not very exciting at all so <laughs> um, all right well let's let's uh let's talk about your avatars where did this come from well um it was work for this podcast uh called keith and the girl um i went on a cruise uh and met a few people on the cruise from this podcast. And when I got home, um, I ended up scanning in some drawings I did and just splashing a little color into them and put it on their forums like, hey, you know, here's a couple of the people from the show that I wanted to draw. And uh, here they are. I drew them. And uh, lo and behold, I started getting a lot of emails saying, hey, will you draw me? I'll pay you. So I was thinking, sure, I'll do that. And at first I was just setting up a donation system, which was, I'll draw you, just kick a couple of bucks my way. Um, whatever you think it's worth, I'll do it. And um, I kept getting more and more busy, um, just kind of lucked up into this that uh, I had to set some actual concrete prices because every once in a while you get some cheapskate and mm. – freeloader sending you a five dollar bill for a drawing you're like really that's all it was worth to you <laughs> yeah and that is also tough because if you don't define uh what your time is worth as an artist it's hard for others to gauge that if they're not in that industry or have no connection to it so you know i mean for them they were probably thinking well it's just a drawing what the fuck yeah. do they know and for you it's like bitch this is a couple hours of my life that's really like a couple hundred dollars of my time <laughs> i mean you know it, it's tough to gauge that if you're not in the know so, yeah, you're right. I mean, at some yeah, level, there probably is a cheapskate, but <laughs> how, how has that evolved for you? I mean, are, is that something that you're still offering today and that, you, you know, you'll take time out of your uh, busy schedule to do for people? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, as far as freelance work goes, that's my favorite thing to do. I love drawing people. There's usually a funny slant to them, like I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's just nice because... Um, well, you know, like I said, you're, you're coming from that graphic design background. It's really, really nice to just deliver a final product, and um, that's it. There's no back and forth. Um, you know, I'm just not well-suited for a lot of back and forth with the art world. Mm -hmm. After a while, I get really frustrated. Well, after the first change, I'm really bad about that. I just don't want to do changes. I mean, sometimes you understand where they're coming from. I'm like, oh, well, if it's not reading well, then I understand why you want it to change. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, you're just like, who are you to tell me what works? Is no <laughs> I'm the creative genius. <laughs> so <know>. shame. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I, I completely understand that. And especially when it's, I mean, obviously they're, they're paying you because they want your interpretation and yet they still think at some point in their head that they know better, <laughs> that they can just somehow dictate that. it to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty frustrating. Oh, I mean, what else is coming down the pipe for you uh, as far as uh, what can we expect as a consuming audience? Well, more avatars, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing some art prints for uh, calmtheham.com. Um, a lot of pop culture stuff. I did a Breaking Bad one in a super cartoony Hanna-Barbera style. And I just did a Boardwalk Empire uh, print of uh, the character Richard Haro. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's one of my favorite TV characters of all time. So I drew like an early 20s uh, animation version of Okay, well, let me talk a little bit about um, the professional end of things for you as, as a free... I'm, are you, You're a freelancer, right? Yeah, like I'm entirely. a freelancer. Well, I do have a part-time job, as uh, shameful as that is to admit as well. <laughs> all in all, uh, most of my money comes from freelance, but um, it comes and goes. Mostly goes. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the steps you can take? Because I know um, there's a lot of people, creative individuals in my audience, and you know maybe they're wondering how they can uh, network themselves. Uh, do you have any advice in that arena for how do you reach out to prospective clients or potential clients and, and really sell yourself as a creative artist? Well, um, don't be afraid to work for free. Uh, it's kind of counterintuitive if you want to get paid to do art, uh, draw for free, but a lot of times you're going to have to prove your uh, chops or uh, kind of test the waters uh, with a client before they're actually going to uh, spend any money on you. Yeah. But if you want to work with somebody, if you want to do something, just do it. And uh, if you get paid for it, great. But chances are you won't. But it's going to lead to something else and they're going to remember you. So I guess my only real piece of advice would be to work for free. I did a lot of internships and apprenticeships too uh, coming up because I didn't go to art school. And it kind of um, helped me learn the craft, but most importantly, it just showed that I can work with people. Yeah, and that's actually really, really important in the creative industry as well. I mean, people will take, and I'm not saying this is a case at all, but I'm just saying uh, as, as a general rule of thumb, uh, all things being equal, uh, if you have two creative individuals, you're going to work with the one that's a better personality and is willing to go the extra mile. Yeah, you can't be the creative asshole anymore. Those days are long gone. Yeah, unless you're independently wealthy, then uh, more power to you. <laughs> Let me talk to you a little bit about the process of uh, the technical side of your art. I mean, obviously, it all comes from talent and experience. But I do want to ask, are you working more digitally or are you working more traditionally with your uh, comics, with your art? Yes, I draw. I still hand draw. I still work traditionally, but uh, I use Photoshop to color and make um, corrections to line art. Uh, sometimes I don't even bother whiting things out anymore. I'll just fix it in Photoshop. And uh, I mean, do you ever find a reliance on Photoshop being, um, I don't know, a little bit, maybe even a little bit shameful as an artist? Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I guess you could should just look at it as a tool like anything else, like an eraser or whiteout. But um, yeah, I feel like I do rely on it. Uh, I do blow up sketches and shrink them down and piece stuff together in Photoshop and then print it out and then with a light box trace my drawings. And I do that several times. I mean, I want my stuff to look really dashed out, but uh, truth be told, it rarely is. Yeah. And um, when you scan it in... Um... I mean, what I mean, other than Photoshop, do you use any other programs or any other uh, techniques or methods that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I use uh, Illustrator too. Um, I used to use it a lot more. I did a lot more graphic design kind of stuff, but uh, nowadays I just use it to lay out text. And um, 
I lay it out and then I trace it by hand so it still has that hand-drawn look. Oh, wow. That's actually really yes. interesting. Is So you, you, you do the text in Illustrator, you print it out, and then you redo it up by hand so that it has that sort of structured, yeah, like continuously structured look, but it's still hand-drawn. That's that's a nice way of doing it. Yeah, the kerning's going to be correct and uh, it's going to be straight, but uh, it'll still have that hand-drawn look because when I put computer lettering up to my art, it always looks wrong. It always looks weird. Yeah, that's actually a really good trick. Um, I'm gonna yeah, have to... word balloons, it works really well. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to uh, be using that in some projects I'm working on. Um, all right, well, I, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Let's give a little bit of a plug here. So your website is Lataland.com? Yeah, L-A-T-T-A-L-A-N-D uh, dot com. And where can people uh, reach out and contact you other than the website? Oh, well, I'm on Twitter at joshlatta.com. And I'm also on Facebook. You can always look for me there or Lataland on Facebook. Um, but uh, you name the social platform, I'm on it. So uh, finding my art won't be too hard. Oh, yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Sure. Oh, no, no, it was my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SaintNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!